So you, my child, my son, my daughter, be strong in the grace. Everyone say strong in grace. You, my son, my child, my daughter, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And what you have heard, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. Or in other words, make disciples who are able to make disciples. That's what Paul is talking about. In a way, he is rephrasing Jesus' great commission about going into the world, going out into the world and make disciples from all nations. And he is saying, son, daughter, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ so that you can make disciples who are in turn able to make disciples. As I consider this verse against the backdrop of our present society, I realize how much like the first church we are becoming. How much our world is becoming like the world that the early Christian church emerged in. And I think about what a precise balance we must hold walking through such a hostile world as the ambassadors of Christ, helping the hostiles become disciples. Where do you think we're going to get the disciples of Christ from. We're not going to Christians R Us and buying ready-made disciples off the shelf. We're going to get them the way somebody got us. Amen. The hostiles of the hostile world being made into the followers of Jesus Christ. It's not easy, is it? It's, it's, becoming, it's becoming quite a balancing act. We must thread the dual horizons of judgment against sin and mercy for sinners. And <clears throat> how do we? How do we do that? How do we, amidst the rising lawlessness in our land that is creeping over our land, how do we, amidst that rising lawlessness, keep from being pushed to anger by offense or being pulled by sympathy into compromise? How do we avoid either of those things and stay in the middle? With each passing day in this year 2020, which has be become quite a year, hasn't it? But in each passing day, it's becoming more evident that only the narrow way of the cross can prevent us from swerving over one cliff or the other. What does it take to stay on the path? As I said, to, to not be pushed by anger into offense or pulled by sympathy into compromise. What is it going to take? It's going to take being strong in grace. Strong in in grace. Only the people that are strong in the grace of Jesus Christ will be able to stay on that path and be effective and be able to produce disciples who can produce disciples. So what is grace? If, if grace is what, what makes us strong, what is grace? 
grace is, is maybe first of all permission to come, come to God. It's permission to come. The devil has said no. Your friends and people that know you say, you can't be a Christian, look at your life. But God says, yes, you can. He opens the door in Jesus Christ and he welcomes you. He welcomes you to come. So grace is the permission. You can come. I don't care what your life has been or who you previously were running with. You can run with Jesus. So grace is that permission, but it's so much more than permission. Grace is also power. It's not just permission, but it's power. Sometimes people have mistaken grace for the permission to stay the same. God loves me just the way I am, and so grace is permission for me to stay the way I am. But grace is more than permission. Grace is power to change. Not permission to stay where you are, but, but power to go beyond where you are. Power to be what God has called you to be. And in fact, I was laying in my bed recently thinking about grace, and um, it, just, it just kind of rose up in my heart. Grace, grace is God is working here. That's grace. God is working here. There might be contention. There might be strife or darkness or ignorance. But if, if there's grace, then God is working here. Grace is, say it with me, God is working here. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So strength in grace begins as vision. It begins as something that you see. It's, it's seeing grace helping that rebel that's like you once were. It's seeing grace helping that rebel to become a disciple like you are now. It's the ability to see people steeped and bound in the offensiveness of their sin, just like you and I were, remembering where grace found us and how grace brought us. And it's the ability to see them as that potential disciple, to see God granting them the permission to come, empowering them to change, bringing them into his presence. Yes, God is working here. Hallelujah. So strength in grace begins by reviewing the work that grace has done in you, how it transformed you from being a, a foolish sinner to a sincere Christ follower. You see, sometimes we've been with the Lord so long, we forget where we came from. We forget where we were when the Lord found us. And we forget what God can do. And when we forget that, then we look at other people around us who are where we used to be, and we forget how God can work in them and what he's able to do. This is the strong grace that Paul said we need to have to work in a hostile world, shaping broken lives into disciples who are able to make disciples. And I want to take it a step farther and say that it's not just the ability to see how grace can work, but once grace becomes vision, 
it then has to go a step further and grace has to become desire. Our hearts have to want, deeply want to see grace work where darkness is right now ruling and reigning. Do you want to see? Because if we don't want to see, truly want to see the things that offend us the most, like Saul of Tarsus must have been to the believers of his day, I bet most of them not only, maybe if only privately, wished he would drop dead and spare the church because people were being destroyed by that man. Families broken up and, and people put to death their properties, ruined, their homes taken. And so I bet a lot of them, as I said, if, if only secretly, wished that Paul would drop dead or just go away. And I bet some of them even said it. But I'm sure, I'm sure that there probably weren't too many people that wanted, looked at him and, and had desire rise in their heart to see him become the Apostle Paul. But I'm telling you right now that grace has got to start with vision. We have to see Saul become Paul. And it starts by remembering how that happened in your life. And then it's got to turn into desire. Then you've got to look at the world around you and you've got to navigate those two horizons, judgment against sin and mercy for sinners and keep from going off either cliff. Keep from becoming invalidated and paralyzed and unable to work in the situation because you've been pulled into anger or you've been pushed into compromise and you're ineffective. You can't make a disciple. We are not going out into those extremes to make disciples. We're standing on that wonderful holy path of grace and we are calling them to come, to come and they will come. But do you know that you have to have desire in your heart for them to come? The Bible says, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe you receive them. We're willing to pray to a God who we believe has all the desire that's necessary for sinners to get saved. But why do we not see, particularly the most bitter or the most bound of sinners in our communities, why do we not see more of them come to Christ? Be, especially in communities where we have a large percentage of believers. It's because those believers leave all the desire up to God. They are eager to see God save souls, but they don't have any personal desire to see those people, especially the ones that irritate them, especially the ones that are obnoxious, like you once were and I once was. Uh, particularly this past weekend with the gatherings um, in Washington, D.C. for prayer, there's a lot of people saying, oh, we're in, the, we're in the, tra the tractor beam of Bible prophecy. The Lord's coming soon. I can feel it. Folks, have you not read the Bible says this gospel must be preached in all the world? 
What do you think it's going to take for us to, to share the gospel with those that don't know it? Desire for them to get saved. Thank God for the few who have gone around the world or go to those that are trapped in bondage. But the reality is, is that as long as you're just waiting for God's desire for them and God's love for them, nothing's going to happen. And the harvest around us is just going to go from being ripe to harvest to being rotten and bound until another generation comes up. How many generations have to come and go before we realize we must be strong in grace. It's not enough for God to be strong in grace. He wants you and I to be strong in grace. He hasn't called you and I to sit on the sidelines as Christians and editorialize about the world, analyze and speculate and comment and, and, and rightly tag what's right and what's wrong. We're the ones who are supposed to be his body. If God loves the sinner and wants them saved, how's that love going to reach the sinner if it's not reaching it through you and I loving? We must be strong in grace. Are you beginning to get this simple message that the Lord's put on my heart? The, the, the strength in grace comes from your desire to see the transforming power change an obnoxious sinner rather than losing him to judgment. Think about that. Having this vision, however, does come at a price because this vision doesn't work from the heights of elevation, but from the depths of humility. It's not doing a whole lot for the kingdom of God if we are elevated through our closeness with the Lord to a height where we can look at the world and see what's going on and understand it and rightly label and analyze things. Because few people are ever motivated from that mountaintop. They just bask in the mountaintop. But when we are in the depths of the valley of humility, that's where willingness occurs. We become willing when we are humble. We become willing when we are a little bit sick of ourselves and a little bit broken over self and we are in the depths of humility and that is where deep desire begins to rise. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 and 7, it says, Humble yourself under the mighty power of God and at the right time He will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. So Peter says, humble yourself. When you and I stand before a lawless world, which naturally lashes out against us and against the Jesus who lives in us, if we are not humble, if we don't humble ourselves, we're going to be offended. We are, we are going to think about self more than anything else. We will be very aware of our own emotions. We will be very aware of how we feel in the face of that. And we're not even thinking about so much how God feels or how he views it. 
but how we and our righteousness and our, you know, uh, uh, sanctified sensibilities are being impacted by that lawlessness and that offense which is clearly aimed at us. And we will not discern that it's aimed at Jesus who on the cross became the focal point of that sentiment of lawlessness and returned by saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now that was strength in grace because he saw he saw just exactly like Cindy prayed, Lord, they are zealous out there. I got saved as an atheist who ran around arrogantly and pompously spouting off comments about God and Jesus, not knowing a thing about what I was talking about, having never opened a Bible, having had no religious instruction, had no experience with Christianity. I'd never been to a church I never opened a Bible. I never prayed once in my life, but there I was out there pontificating among the rest of the wise men, my friends, and making these comments. But the Lord didn't get offended at that. He said, Nicky doesn't know what he's saying. Father, forgive him. He's just foolish, Nicky. And he went on and gave up his life so that I could live. So that one night alone in my bed, he could knock on the door of my heart. Who's that knocking? It's Jesus. And in a minute, I was saved and delivered. God has, has not changed. He's not closed the door. He hasn't come up with a new way of getting sinners. And the Lord is certainly not saying, it's really hard to find new disciples nowadays because so many of them are bad. <laughs> and we're, you know, we're working with really bad material. Back when you guys got saved, you know, people were reasonable. But, you know, I, you know, I, came, I got saved out of the 60s. We were not reasonable. We were nutty and crazy and belligerent and egotistical and offensive. So, Humble yourself, humble yourself, especially in those moments when, when being not humble is going to cost you your strength in grace. It is costly to follow Jesus. If you're going to follow him and be a disciple maker, you must be strong in grace, but it's going to be costly because you're always going to have to keep self out of your line of sight if you want to see what God is doing with sinners. As long as self is part of the focus, you will not be able to see that person get saved. You'll see a burning. You, you, can, you can just about see hell open its terrible jaws and swallow that, that sarcastic you know, 22-year-old girl that's flipping you off or in the, you know, making lawless comments or statements or whatever. But the fact is that we must be strong in grace if, and have a desire to go put ourselves in the place where God can use us. 
It's not easy in this hour that we're living in. Jesus in Matthew 24 was talking about the last days and, and he was talking about all the things that are going to come. And it's always been amazing to me, the books that are written to, and all the, you know, the conferences that people go to and the charts that they make. And they always point out the signs. Wars, rumors of wars, Israel's doing this and, and the nations are doing that and how many nations in the European Commonwealth and all that. They're looking for all of these alignments and they overlook the one thing, the one thing that Jesus said would be such a prominent sign and not only a sign, but it would be the one sign that was especially dangerous for the church. And he said in Matthew 24, 12, and because lawlessness will increase, the agape, the godly love of the many will grow cold. Now there's the sign. You want to watch a sign? That sign is rising right now in our society. And it's not, it's not just the coldness of heart among people that have never had agape. It's the coldness of agape in the hearts of the tens of thousands of Christians whose fire of desire, whose vision of grace, whose personal strength to want to reach out and bring that young woman or that young man to Christ is growing cold. And they don't even realize that they are retreating back into a tight encasement of religious protection deep within the cellular, cellular confines of their church, waiting it out till Jesus comes. Now that is not making disciples who can make disciples. That's just keeping the disciples that you've got. We are in a spiritual battle. There's, there's, no, there's no doubt about that. But people are not our enemy. That we have to remember that. Uh, there are all these warrior symbols. You go on Facebook and you see the Christians and you'd, you'd think we lived in the dark ages, you know, with the, 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 the battle axes and the, and, uh, the w warrior stuff and all that. You, you could get confused eas pretty easily about what Christians think that spiritual warfare is all about. We are absolutely in a pitch battle. We are at war. We are soldiers. There's the whole armor of God. But we're not fighting people. We're not at war with people. We really have to sort that out, don't we? Because it, it says in Ephesians chapter 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the demonic powers that stand behind them with their, with their powerful hands clamping their shoulders, with the puppet master's hand in the back of their throat and upon their hearts and moving their minds, just like he had his hand on your heart and just like he had a grip on your life. We're not at war with people. Stop letting Satan fight your fruit. 
Stop letting Satan uh, um, lead you to fight your fruit. Amen. Do you know, what the, you know what I mean by that? Amen. Don't fight your fruit. Those people out there that you, that you and I think we're fighting with, that's our fruit. That's right. Don't fight with your fruit. You can't save fruit and fight with it at the same time. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. You either want them to go to hell or you want them to come to Jesus. You have to decide. Stop leaving it up to God. He already decided. What do you think the, what do you think the Great Commission's all about? He already decided and said, I want them all saved. Go get them. I'm going to admit that we have never seen the captives of sin clinch so tightly in the jaws of Satan as we do today. In our lifetimes, I'd be willing to bet. This truly is a captured generation in Satan's trap of offense. You've heard me teach many times on the trap of offense. I have never seen in my lifetime more people really hope, seemingly hopelessly trapped in offense I would say that the spirit of offense is one of the driving factors in our world today. When you think about the whole issue of racism, all the political strife, all of the, the philosophical and academic contests going on right now in our world, we're at war and at battle with ourselves over what basic philosophy and idea we're going to use to define the world that we live in. We were all pretty much on one page for centuries. But now, just within our brief lifetime, our world, our side, is at, embroiled in a war with itself about how we view the universe that we live in where we're at, who we belong to, and who we are, and who's in charge. And so, it's as bad as we've ever seen it. But I want you to remember this, and I want to circle back in my ending to exactly what Cindy read out of Isaiah and what she said. And I want to bring this right back around because I believe that is what the Holy Spirit is saying right now. So I'm going to read that verse again out of Isaiah 49. Listen carefully in light of what has been said from this pulpit this morning, who can snatch the plunderer of war from the hands of a warrior? Who can demand that a tyrant let his captives go? But the Lord says, the captives of warriors will be released and the plunder of tyrants will be retrieved. For I will fight those who fight you, and I will save your children. Those may not be your direct biological children, but they're somebody's children. And I believe we can take this verse up, and we can stand as intercessors and say, those are my children. And I want them back. We say we believe not only in a unified body of Christ. We believe in Psalm 133. 
How good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. But we also say we believe that the answer for our land, we believe that the answer for America is the unity, the melting pot, the, the, the constitutional ideal that was derived from the Word of God that we are diverse in many ways but one people. And if we believe that we are one people, can we take up the intercessor's heart and stand in the gap and say, I want my children back? Instead of saying, they're not my brats. I didn't raise my kids that way. There is a weeping father or a weeping mother somewhere, brokenhearted, because their son or their daughter has become so obnoxious. Now, I know that's not always true. Sometimes mom and dad's out there with them. So perhaps the grandparents are brokenhearted. But it doesn't matter if we go back to the forefathers of our nation. Where are the fathers? Where are the mothers who will stand and say, yes, God, do what you said you would do and retrieve the captives from the warriors that took them and carried them away. Take the plunder away from the tyrants who legally now own and possess them. Enough of saying they got themselves into that. Most of you here have not only have children, most of you, but have grandchildren. Some of you have grandchildren. Would you want God to say, they got themselves into it. I'm not going to go get them out. I certainly wouldn't. Now, I've got a son who lives and has lived since the 1990s halfway around the world. He lives in Asia. He lives in Japan. And he's lived there since he got out of the military. And he's raising a beautiful family. They all love Jesus. His, his, his Okinawan wife and their three children, they all love Jesus. They all belong to the body of Christ. But he wasn't always saved. He, he was raised in our home. But God doesn't have any grandchildren. Only children. So my son, just like all sons, went off, you know, and became obnoxious. Jesus ran him down and found him and saved him just like he did me. And I'm so grateful for that. And when he married his beautiful wife, she didn't know Jesus. She didn't know who Jesus was. Jesus introduced himself to her in a shower one day. Scared her out of her mind. She called him up on the phone. You've got to come home right now. Jesus just talked to me and told me that, that he is the God that, that you were telling me about. Tell me, she says to her husband, my son, what do I do? What do I do? And God was working. Hallelujah. If my son or my daughter, your children, if they were half a world away, out of the reach of your influence, and they were obnoxious and they were bound in sin and, and ridiculous, wouldn't you want the Christians that were near them to look upon them and want them to be saved yes. and desire that Isaiah's prophecy be fulfilled on their behalf? So have, have 
the vision of grace and be strong. Remember that God who retrieved Jesus from the marble jaws of death can still deliver people from their policies and pull sinners from sin. If God's touched your life, it's because he wants to touch other people's lives. He loves them just like he loves you and I. So Paul said, my son, my daughter, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and make disciples who will go out and make disciples. I believe we can do that today, don't you? I'd like you to close your Bible or turn off your device and stand with me.